Welcome to The Hobbyist. My name is Piers Cooper, and I'm here to talk to you about hobbies. My own and yours. If I'm honest, I'm a bit embarrassed. It's been a very long time since the last episode, and I would like to apologise. Life has been in the way, but I am back, and so is The Hobbyist. And so therefore, please listen on, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Now, I'm going for a slightly more loose and informal feel for this, so as things go on, I'm going to be a little bit less structured, I'm going to be a little less scripted, and I'm hoping that's going to really improve things for you guys, because what I really want you to do is to enjoy it and not feel like I'm lecturing you. So let's see how that works out. Hobbies Roundup. Let's have a bit of a roundup of what happened since we last spoke. I've ten items on my list here. I don't know how far we'll get through those ten, but uh, let's see what kind of update I can give you here. So the first thing on my list is bird watching. I managed 105 birds on my year list last year. Now, that's not that many, and I do have high hopes of getting more this year. For instance, right now, I'm up at uh, 50 exactly. But the difference in the mix of the birds that I've been seeing this year has been quite marked. Last year, Field Fair and Red Wing on the 1st of January. We're now towards the middle of February, and there's still no sign of either of those that I have seen in the local area. Now, it may just be that they passed through earlier, or that I missed them when they passed through later in the month. But it did strike me that there was a difference in the quantity and quality of the birds that I've seen this year. But that said, I have had some really interesting sights. So the first thing I would mention was going over to Eldenell, where I saw three short-eared owls. And that was really quite exciting. There were two that were roosting in a tree at the side of a barn, and then a third one that was sitting basically perched on a pile of old logs in the middle of a field. It was a really, really windy day that I went down there. And one of the chaps that was there was explaining that the fact that it's so windy means that the owls can't hunt. Their super sensitive hearing cannot pick up the sound of the voles and the mice and whatever else crawling through the grass. And so they just sit there hungry, basically, and miserable. And it was a particularly bitter day. I remember walking along the bank to try and see the glossy ibis, which I did eventually get to see, which was on the right-hand side of Lord's Holt, a small woodland piece, um, about an acre in size, that's to the side of the marshes down there. And walking into the wind, it was just bitter. I mean, there was no escape from it. Normally the banking, uh, which is there to protect the floodplain, shelters you from the wind a little bit. But just because of the angle of the wind, it was just shooting straight down the line of that. Uh, and it just felt like it was peeling your skin off. It was really, really harsh down there. In terms of bird watching, though, I was a bit hindered in January, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't really get back into it till February, was because I had to send my binoculars away for repair. My Opticrons are a pair of Natura BGs, and they're nice. I mean, I've tried other binoculars that have been much more expensive, and really don't see a huge amount of benefit from having those, apart from maybe a slightly wider angle. And I have looked at buying a more expensive pair of the Opticrons, but I find, well, it's quite hard to justify. I, mean, I, th I think my Opticrons cost me, I got them really cheaply. I think I got them about sort of 230 quid or something like that when they should be high 300s uh, when they were launched two or three years ago. But um, to replace them with a better pair, I'm looking at spending seven, 800 pounds. And that's a significant chunk of money to outlay on a pair of binoculars to gain one degree of wide angle on it. 
and maybe some slightly better coatings on the optics. And when I'm very happy with what I have, that's not a problem. However, when I don't have that pair of binoculars, that's a difficulty. But what happened was, I think at some point over the winter, they must have got knocked. I don't remember dropping them or damaging them in any way, but there was a real slackness in the focusing wheel. That uh, problem with the focusing wheel was a real problem for me because it meant that you couldn't refocus quickly. And you were never sure that you were going to be precisely refocusing either because there was so much slack. It got to the point where there was about a quarter turn and it was really affecting my confidence in using the, the binos. So what I did was I looked it up and found out that I could send them directly to Opticron to get them serviced. So I rang them up and said, look, I, I need to send these off to you. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the process is, but I want to find out how much it's going to cost to get them repaired. And the interesting thing that came back from them was, well, if it's under warranty, and I put a 30-year warranty with these binoculars, then it would cost me nothing apart from the postage to send it to them. So I thought, well, I'll take my chances. Um, and I packaged them up and sent them in. And they did tell me to package them up well. They'd had several over the Christmas period, which had been sent in, um, which was just basically, you know, glass and metal in, old, in shards uh, because people hadn't protected them properly. So I wrapped it up really properly. It took me about a week to get all the padding that I wanted to make it nice and safe. Uh, sent them off with the full expectation they were going to ring me up and bill me for the return postage because that's what the website said would happen. But in actual fact, very shortly after I'd sent them off, I received an email saying, yes, it was definitely a warranty repair. And then about just under two weeks later, I received the binoculars back, no charge for the postage. And they are so tight now. I mean, that that focusing wheel has no slack whatsoever. It's beautifully adjusted. So I'm chuffed to bits. And thank you to Opticron UK because that was superb service. And uh, I'm really grateful for their help. So there we go. OK, let's move on then. One of the things that's been one of my obsessions in the last year has been chess. As you know, I restarted playing chess towards the end of 2020 and spent much of the early part of 2021 faffing about trying to relearn how to play. And then during the summer, I looked into joining a chess club. Now, this you won't know about because I haven't done an episode since then. But So in September, I started up with the New England Chess Club, which meets at the Yard of Ale pub on Arundel Road. There's a bit of a story behind the name of the New England Chess Club. It originally started out as the Perkins Engines Chess Club in the 1960s. And then for various reasons became the New England one because they were meeting in New England and now still called the New England Chess Club. And there's a Peterborough Chess Club that now, strangely enough, meets <laughs> in New England. So they meet at the Technical College in New England. So it's really confusing. But anyway, nice bunch of guys. There's not that many people who are my age or younger, I will be honest. It's quite an old group. Most of the core members, I would guess, are in their 60s or 70s. Um, there are a few that are a bit younger than that. There's me, there's Jim, there's Ed. There's a few of them that are, in, are younger. And there's a mix of talents, but they're all, all much better than me. And I make no excuses for it. I've yet to win a game. But I am improving. And I wasn't for a long time. I will tell you this. Between September and December, I felt like I was stagnating. I wasn't improving. I was losing. I was, my concentration wasn't there. My dedication wasn't there. And my ability in the game to see what was happening and to see my opponent's tactics just didn't seem to be getting better. And then we had a break over Christmas because obviously we had lots of stuff to go with the uh, Omicron variant and people were very nervous about playing and people stopped going to the club and because I wasn't attending every week and I wasn't playing every week against somebody but I was playing my mum and I'll you know shout out to my mum here she's very patient because she loses every single time to me and it's that that keeps me going because <laughs> I actually get to win against somebody and um, and that just keeps my confidence up 
But one of the things that I do benefit from playing my mum is that she plays the most random moves. And it means that I have to come up with strategies against things that you wouldn't expect people to play. Now, it means that often I beat her very, very quickly. Don't get me wrong. But it also means that I have to be very inventive because pretty much every game I have to finish off with a checkmate. And of course, that means that you have to learn all the different ways of checkmating somebody, depending on which pieces you have left at the end of the game. Now, often I've munched through pretty much all of my mum's pieces by the time I've checkmated her king. But quite often, she's taken some key pieces from me. I blunder. I won't make any excuses. I do. And I think that actually this has just really helped me to develop my thinking around the board. I've got that spatial awareness now, which means that I'm holding people. And I almost had a draw with Jim. I did offer one the other week, but then he found a way through my defences and I made some stupid moves right in the end game, and I lost. But it wasn't that far away from a draw slash I could have perhaps made an attack and perhaps won that game. So really bolstered my confidence there. And that's really made me feel much better about my chess recently. Now, there are two books that I've been reading that have been really good for me on that subject. Now, the first one is Winning Chess by um, Chernev and Reinfeld. Now, this is a really old book. I was lent a copy of this that's been sort of the club Bible for many years. It's a really old 1950s issued one hardback. It's, the book itself is really quite delicate, but it's been through so many club players' hands, and there's got lots of exercises within it which allow you to practice particular things like pins, and various different manoeuvres, and it hammers home that point and gets you to practice those things over and over and over until you really learn to understand and to see those opportunities when you're playing the game. And definitely, I would say, that book's really helped me with trying to work out how to obstruct my opponent's play and to build a more secure centre. There's another one that I'm reading at the moment, though, that's by Jan Marcos, which is called Under the Surface, and it's an analysis of what goes on behind the decisions that make a good gameplay and how you can recover those positions quite nicely. And although I'm only on about chapter five or six of that, I've been slowly working my way through it. Unlike in winning chess, it doesn't bombard you with the same thing over and over and over again in artificial situations. It puts you through a real game, two or three examples per chapter, but really goes into what's going on in each individual position. And you can just sit there with a chessboard in front of you, play it through, or you can do it in your mind in some cases. I mean, I am getting better at the visualisation of this stuff. And you can really start to learn the fundamentals behind how people are thinking. And it allows you a little bit of an, an insight into what your opponent may be thinking and what their tactics and what their strategy for this overall game might be. So it's a really good book, and both of those books I can heartily recommend if you're into chess or you're even vaguely interested in learning chess. I think if you started out with winning chess, if you already know the moves, then I think you'll get somewhere. And then once you've, you've gone through winning chess, and you may not be an expert by the time you finish that, I will say that, but by the time you've gone through winning chess or you've learned all the pieces and you're getting a little bit further into the game, then Jan Marcos is under the surface, I think is a really, really good next step. It really helps. Right, moving swiftly on, because time is ticking, I haven't had much chance to play the instruments recently, and I do find that I'm very behind. I haven't played the piano for quite some time. I played, started again about two weeks ago, and I was really rusty. I couldn't remember all the exercises and all the pieces that I had memorized previously. And I think I'm just going to have to become dedicated and start again and start playing every day for five or ten minutes, like I used to, and I will see that gradual improvement in my skill there. I haven't played the flugelhorn at all this year, and 
I have been noodling about on the guitar a little bit more, but that's something that will uh, again come back. I used to play for many years, uh, not very well, I have to say. I'm not a particularly skilled guitarist, but I did enjoy playing it, and uh, I have some plans to record some more music later this year. Okay, moving on to Lino Cut. I did make a little stamp for a friend of mine, Katie, from Twitter. Shout out to her. And that was quite nice to make. It's difficult to do a tiny stamp. I'd not done one before, and I found this quite an interesting little project. So very pleased with how that turned out in the end. That's about all I've done in the way of Lino Cut, and I do want to do more. I've ambitions this year to buy a proper press, uh, one of the etching presses, maybe one of the ones from Ironbridge Printworks. It'll be a lot of money, but I'm going to turn the back bedroom from being my current recording studio into being an art studio. And I'm going to convert the cupboard in the corner of what's my, my library come music room to becoming my new recording studio. So there will be some improvements and changes there. And I'm hopeful that that will all happen in the next two to three months. So fingers crossed, and I'll keep you updated on what happens there. On to woodworking. So I made some workhorses. They're triangulated wood. I made them quite nicely. Uh, bridle joints, uh, lots of mortises. They're a matched pair. They sit together. They're really nice and they work. I used them earlier when I was laying the parquet flooring in my dining room, which has been one of the big projects that's been going on since Christmas. I'm at that point now where I need to have a warm day. I've got to do a lot of work uh, where I'm removing dust and I'm going to be using white spirit, and then once that evaporates, I'm then going to be oiling the floors again with lots of high volatiles going through that, which means that I'm going to have to have the windows open at the moment. The temperature just does not permit me to do that. So as soon as the weather starts to turn, I'll be finishing that floor off and getting that all tidied away, which I'm quite excited about. Did a little bit of turning just before Christmas, and that was quite exciting. It was nice to get back onto the lathe. Nothing particularly exciting created. I was just creating some pins for various other little projects. And I did make a shave horse. So a shave horse is a construction that you sit on. So it's a little bit like an extended bench. And it has a lever on it that you push with your feet. And that then pulls the top part of that lever forward toward your body. And it compresses down onto an angled piece which holds a piece of wood in it. Now you get a draw knife and from there you can then draw the knife across the surface of the wood to remove bark, to smooth it out, to shape that wood. And I'm quite pleased with the way that was constructed. It was a very fiddly build because I'd never built one before and I was doing one basically from reference photographs. So I wasn't sure what the sizes were going to be, what the lengths should be, I was just making it up as I went along. But it was a really interesting and exciting project. And I'm going to do something else similar again this year, but I'm going to rebuild the same project, but this time do it better because I made some fundamental mistakes in the one that I built this time around. But it was a really good effort and I, quite, I found that an involving and very pleasing project to do. Now on to gardening. Gardening has been a real problem for me. Um, last summer, there were a number of problems I had. I'm not one who likes the heat, and it doesn't get particularly hot, uh, but I also don't enjoy gardening when it's pouring with rain. And we had a lot of different weather last summer. It was very changeable. And one of the problems I had was that very early on in the summer, well, late summer, I suppose, if, if you're being very precise. But uh, in August, mid-August, I had a problem where I did my back in. And it was excruciatingly painful. I'd been pruning some hedges, and I'd been cutting up the 
bits that I've cut off again into one of my recycling bins. And I'd been standing by the side of the garage, which serves as my workshop, and the wind had been howling down the side of it. And I'd been sort of stretching and leaning down and picking things up and putting things in the bin. And my, bin, my back was a bit stiff. And I came indoors and I sat down and I could not get back up. My back had completely seized. And it wasn't just a case of, oh, it's a bit jokey, it's painful. I was at the point where, in order to be able to get myself upright, I was levering myself up against the wall. I was graying out. I had a flop sweat. I genuinely thought I was going to pass out from the pain. Eventually, I found one of my walking sticks. I'd been on a walking holiday the week before, and I managed to get the walking stick and levered myself around the house, basically counted at a 45-degree angle because I couldn't get my back upright. And I then spent the next three or four days in absolute agony. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't get up. When I sat down, I had to go up and down the stairs on my bum. It was... I mean, it's funny in hindsight, don't get me wrong, but at the time it was excruciating. And that was the real unsettler for me because my back from that point onwards became a real problem. And I couldn't bend, I couldn't stretch, I was afraid to crouch, I was afraid to do gardening at, at foot level. And that meant that the garden went to pot in the, in the autumn. And to my shame, I've, it's only really recently that I've actually worked out what's gone wrong. And there's a, something called the psoas muscle, it's spelled P-S-O-A-S. And it wraps around from the base of your spine underneath those sort of lower back muscles through your hips and down onto your femurs. And they are hip flexors. But what happens is when you spend a lot of time sitting or in one position, that muscle can get really, really tight. And then when you get up, so it's a bit like when you've been sitting down and you get up and your back aches. It's because your lower back muscles are having to brace themselves and overwork against this psoas muscle, which is really big and quite tough. It's a hip flexor, as I said. And what happens is that that psoas muscle gets tighter and tighter and tighter to the point where your lower back muscles can't overcome the force that it's exerting. And for me, I think having stood in that cold in that draft and then sat down, warmed up, the psoas muscle had set, and then that had completely crippled me. So I'm doing exercises now, lots of stretches to try and improve my flexibility um, and improve my hip flexors. And I'm really hopeful that my back will be, by the time the weather changes a little bit better and we get towards being a bit warmer, I'm hoping that that will mean that I can do these exercises, go outside, do a good day's gardening, and not have to worry about my back anymore. So I'm quite excited by that, but it is something that only time will tell, and it is something that only getting out there in the garden, doing the stuff, will actually uh, prove. So fingers crossed for that, and wish me luck, please. Writing. I did a lot of writing last year, started writing short stories and made some notes for some further ones. And the stories are, I would describe them as stories of suspense, mild horror, a departure for me. I've always written science fiction fantasy in the past when I've done these things or done short detective fiction. But uh, for me, no, this time around, I have been writing horror and I've really enjoyed it. It's quite difficult to create that spooky atmosphere on a consistent basis and to come up with stories that have that uncanny edge to them. But I've really enjoyed the experience. I have lots of ideas. I have recorded two or three of the stories already. And with any luck, there will be a new podcast launched later this year with a series of six of my stories that I will narrate myself. And uh, well, keep your ears open. Speaking of books and writing, I did a lot of reading over the summer. And one series that I really thoroughly enjoyed was by Julia Chapman. 
and it's the Dale's Detectives series with Samson O'Brien and Delilah Metcalf. Uh, yes, Samson and Delilah, I know. But actually, it's really quite entertaining. And Samson is a disgraced Met police officer who comes back to the Yorkshire Dales to escape what's going on down there. And he meets his former childhood sweetheart, and she's running a dating agency. And they end up being in the same building. He rents from her downstairs. And lots of things ensue. I won't spoil it by going into any great detail, but I will say that if you like light-hearted detective fiction uh, with a little bit of romance mixed in, it's actually quite worth your while. I've read all of the books now, and I am eagerly waiting for the latest one to come out. Uh, if you've got some time and you enjoy that kind of thing, please give it a go. Finally, and my list of 10 things, we have got to the end of that, uh, photography. Now, early last year, I did a lot of photography, bird photos, uh, street photography, and I got to a point where I was a little bit jaded with it. And this was before I even started the podcast. This was back in sort of February, March time last year. And in the end, I stepped away from photography for quite some time. Now, I've bought this autumn, or last autumn, I should say, I bought a new iPhone 13, and I've been playing around with that and really quite enjoying the results that you can get. I think some of the effects on it, particularly when it does the depth of field effects, I think they're a little artificial. They work well for faces, but for everything else, they look a bit plasticky. And I have criticism of over-sharpening of the photographs, although I think subsequent to my purchasing it, updates to the OS have actually improved that situation. The photographs no longer look so over-sharpened as they did when I first bought the phone. But I have to say, it's very capable. I'm really impressed with that. I think the night photographs are particularly impressive. I think they're compiled by it taking some video and then basically automatically stacking the photographs that it takes over a three or five second period of video. And it comes up with really quite sharp photographs at night, which is really quite impressive. Anyway, it's an expensive device, and I'm hoping to keep it for three or four years at minimum in order for it to repay me. Uh, but I'm really quite pleased with it in the meantime. And some of those photographs can be found already on my Instagram feed. So uh, if you want to have a look, uh, if you have a look under Decamid, I am there. Right. Now, having completed that list, it's on to the main subject of today's programme. And that is the latest hobby. I try hobbies so you don't have to. And I have recently taken up... Today's hobby! Sewing. So, Piers, why have you chosen sewing? It's an odd one, isn't it? Because I think, like many of us, I probably haven't done much sewing since I was at school. I definitely remember being in primary school and making some sewn-together Christmas decorations for the tree uh, with some embroidery on them. But what I don't recall is ever really having any great enthusiasm for sewing in a wider piece. My mother, when I was a child, used to make a lot of clothes, and she used to make the costumes for our school plays. But I've never really been drawn to making my own clothing. One thing I am interested in, though, is making some bags, because I use bags for all sorts of things. And that is what sparked my interest here. But it doesn't mean to say that I haven't taken that a little further, and that down the line I can't see myself looking at making some clothing, but more on that later. So, what do you need to do sewing? It's really quite simple. Some needles, thread, and a pair of scissors. It's that simple. And with that very basic kit, which you can purchase from a supermarket end of aisle little stand for two, three pounds, excepting the scissors, and I'll get to that later, you can sew. 
You can do darning. You can do basic repairs on existing clothes that you have. And with the online resources that there are these days, you can learn to do that very effectively and very neatly. So there's no buying books. If you've got internet access, you can very definitely learn to sew quite quickly. Now, scissors, I did mention this. One of the things I have been surprised by is how expensive scissors are. Now, you can buy little kits of scissors that cost four or five pounds, or even go to a pound shop and perhaps buy some, and they would be sufficient for cutting thread. But for cutting material, you need something heavier. Now, that heavier requirement brings with it cost. And dressmaking scissors, or tailor's scissors, shears as they're known, can be really expensive. The pair that I ended up buying were from a British manufacturer. Um, well, I believe they were a British manufacturer, but it turned out they were actually manufactured, I think, in Pakistan. But it's a British brand anyway. Uh, were about £20, but you could pay two, three, four hundred pounds for a pair of tailor's shears, and the sky's the limit, really, depending on what your budget is like. But also, the smaller scissors, your, your snipping scissors, your, your smaller cutting scissors, they're not cheap either, and you can easily spend 20 or £30 pounds on a basic pair of scissors. So one of the things I would suggest that you do is, unlike me, don't go down the route of buying a pair of scissors disguising that they're not really for you. Go straight for rotary cutters. Now, the Alpha one that I bought was about £13, £14 pounds online. And although they're a little wasteful, because the rotary discs are difficult to sharpen and therefore effectively disposable, I believe they are recyclable. And those Alpha cutters are incredibly effective. It does mean you need a cutting mat. And one of those self-healing green cutting mats that you can buy would be a good choice for that. Get the largest you can afford. They're not terribly expensive online. Uh, I think my A11 cost me around £16, something like that. But indispensable. And then a ruler. The acrylic quilting rulers are the best. Again, not cheap. Um, 15 to £20, pounds depending on the model that you go for and where you buy them from. But I bought a 60cm by 15cm one recently, uh, and that makes most cutting jobs an absolute doddle. The rotary cutter just slices through the cloth easily. You don't end up with tears, snags, or uneven cuts. And I can really highly recommend having a rotary cutter in your life. Buy some spare blades. Again, they're not expensive. I bought 15 for about a tenner, I think, online the other day. And they do last a fair while. So... Rotary cutter over a pair of scissors any day of the week because they're quicker, they're sharper, you get straighter cuts, they're easier to use, so much better with a rotary cutter than it is with a pair of scissors. That said, scissors do have their place. Tight corners with a rotary cutter are quite difficult to do, and I have discovered that doing curved cuts is, is really quite difficult with a rotary cutter. So again, a pair of scissors to back yourself up when you have to go around a curve would be better. But in general, if you've got a steady hand, rotary cutter is where it's at. Now, ignoring the scissors, so you've got your thread, you've got your needles, you want to go a little bit further, you've done a bit of darning, what's the next thing? Well, what the next thing I would recommend would be to go to your supermarket or go to somewhere like Hobbycraft or online again and buy some fat quarters. And these are bits of cloth about 18 by 15 inches, something like that. You can buy them in bundles normally for sort of somewhere between sort of five and 10 pounds for a bundle. You get a number of pieces of cloth inside that. And with those pieces of cloth, you can make any number of little projects. And it's a really cheap and easy way to get into it because you've got your needles, you have your threads, you can cut, you've got your scissors. So at this point, it's just a case of let's have some material and let's start to make some basic things. Going back to what I said earlier on, you could make some primary school style Christmas decorations or make some 
uh, handy little pouches for around the homes or covers for various different things. You can find instructions for any of these things online and it can really get you involved in the sewing process. But one of the things that you will want to do, I think, down the line, once you start to understand and enjoy doing the sewing, it's possible you're going to invest and you're going to invest in a sewing machine. Now, sewing machines, these are not cheap. The one that I bought was the cheapest I could find. It was a full-sized sewing machine on Amazon, and it was the Brother LS14S, which cost me under £90. Now, that's about as cheap as you can go. They do go up to about £10,000, so just to give you some kind of sense of scale here. And really nice ones are somewhere in the region of £500 if you're really in the market for it. But I wanted to find out whether I was into sewing, and so I started up with the cheapest that I could buy. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think for 90% of users you're going to need anything more than the little LS14S. I spent another 20 quid on an extended table for it, which helps with larger pieces of work. And that's all I've really paid out for. Now, you can buy different feet, and I have bought a piping foot for it because I wanted to be able to make piping and also to be able to install zips. But if I'm honest with you, it's not essential, and there are ways around it without buying the specialist feet. But this little sewing machine is a marvel. It's got a metal frame. It is tough as old nails. It will sew through almost anything. I've had it sewing through two layers of canvas, two layers of calico, and a three, four mil thick piece of canvas webbing simultaneously, and it doesn't even blink. It's a really, really good little machine. It comes with a few bits and bobs. They mostly do. They come with a thread cutter. They'll come with uh, a couple of extra feet. One of the best feet that they, don't, they do tend to come with is the buttonhole foot. And if you do buy a sewing machine, just make sure it has a buttonhole program. Most of them do, but sometimes you fall out of luck, especially at the bottom end of the ranges. The buttonhole on the little brother, I will say, is open to criticism. It's not the best buttonhole process, but it does the job, and I have been using it for making buttonholes on the bags that I have made so far. Sewing machines are expensive, and if you're on a tight budget, stick to the hand stuff. Now, what you can do to help with the hand sewing is you can get marking wheels that will mark out stitch lengths for you, so you can just see where you want to stitch, and you basically draw the chalk lines onto the pieces that you're um, working on, and you just follow those lines with your needle, and it makes nice, even stitching very easy for you. So, again, a sewing machine is not essential. It just makes some tasks much quicker and much easier. When you're trying to sew a square that's sort of an inch and a quarter by an inch and a quarter, the sewing machines really make a meal of it. And it's difficult to control a cheap sewing machine where you have no control over the feed rate other than the foot pedal to make sure that you are doing that properly. So what I would suggest is at that point, I get the needle out and I do it by hand. But for most of the sewing, my goodness, yes, you want to be doing it with the machine. Now, where do you go once you've bought a sewing machine? Probably you're going to want to follow a pattern and make some clothing. Now I can say, quite honestly, I haven't tried this myself. I've looked for patterns, but I am a larger gentleman, and I'd struggle to find any that would fit my size, which has put me off. But there is something you can do, which I'm looking to do in the next couple of months, which is called patterning. And you take a piece of clothing that you already own, that you don't necessarily value, but that does fit you, and you unstitch it. You take the component parts apart, 
you trace them out onto large sheets of paper, and then you can create your own patterns for clothing that you know will fit you. Also, because you've dismantled it, you know how it goes back together again. So it makes the whole process of assembling something that much easier. So it is a something I want to do. It's complicated, don't get me wrong, and I'm not going to pretend that it's going to be easy, but I am quite looking forward to having a go at that. Most people start off with something simple, like a shirt or a t-shirt, uh, and then they work their way up to more complicated things. My ultimate aim, I think, would be to make a waistcoat or something, but we'll have to see how I progress, because, as I say, it's quite a complicated process to get right. Now, I've mentioned my own project here, and my projects have mostly been making bags. The bags I've been making are messenger bags, but the very first one that I made was a peg bag, and I made it with fat quarters. Now, I had already ordered in some of the cotton webbing that I mentioned earlier on. Now, the bag was made with fat quarters. I cut them down, uh, but the bag that I made, I was quite pleased with. It was blue on one side. It was sort of a pale um, calico color on the other. The strapping worked. I poured my pegs into it. It was a lined bag with calico, and it didn't cost an awful lot to make with the fat quarters that I had. So I had some fat quarters in calico, I had some fat quarters in um, cotton, and I think the total cost of that bag was somewhere in the region of about four pounds of materials. And it sits in my kitchen, and when the weather turns and I start putting my washing outside again, then it will be an extremely useful addition to my kitchen. So very pleased with that. I then moved on to messenger bags. And the first one that I made in the messenger bag style, I did actually buy some canvas material from a local provider. I'm quite pleased with that. It, mine had two little button holes, and I found some nice buttons to go through there. And I was really pleased with it, and I gave, my, gave it to my dad. And my dad uses it now for when he goes to the library, he carries his books in it. Then I wanted to make another one, so I made another one identical, but for the fact that I wanted it to be padded. Now, I was going through a few agonies on this because I wanted to have something that was organic. I wanted to have something that was natural materials and would be biodegradable. So in the end, I bought cotton bunting, but... It is a nightmare to work with. You move it to try and settle the sheets out so that it is no longer ruckled, and it just stretches. It's like cotton wool in very, very thin sheets. And I think it works. If you were quilting, I think it would be an amazing thing. But I think for bags, it, and for me in particular, I'm quite ham-fisted. I found it almost impossible to work with. And I would say to people, maybe, if you're going looking at padding, maybe go with artificial fibers, and I don't want to recommend this, but I'm going to, to keep the cost down and also to make it much more handleable. What I'm going to be doing for the next bag that I make is I'm going to be using the 6mm carpet underlay that I use to make my recording booth. Now, this is already recycled material. It's mostly artificial fibers, and so it's end of life. But because it's already been recycled and it's going into a bag that's going to last some time, in my head, I can excuse it on those fronts. And also, it's good padding, it's very good as insulation, and it's cheap, which is another interesting factor going toward it. Anyway, the intention is that I'll prototype this bag up, and if I can get the production time down to a reasonable level, I might make a run of half a dozen and then seek to perhaps sell them. If there's any interest out there, please let me know at the email address in the notes, and I will see what I can do. Conclusion. So, darning, I think, is the quickest way into sewing. From that, you will probably, if you like it, want to make something, get some fat quarters. You don't have to have a machine, but if you can afford a machine, or if you can get a second-hand machine, or if someone can lend you a machine, it will transform the way that you sew. And once you start to use a machine, you are probably going to want to get some patterns. Patterns aren't terribly expensive, thankfully, online. 
and then you will start to make your own clothes or your own pieces of accessories. And uh, I think from that point on, it's a skill for life. It's one of those things where once you can do it, you don't stop having that skill and you'll find it useful on many occasions for the future. So that's sewing then. And would I recommend it? Yes, I absolutely definitely would. Right. Well, that's the end of this program. And thank you so much for listening and for coming back after such an enormous gap. I think it was something like July since we've last had an episode. Really want to thank you all for returning and listening to me gabbling on for half an hour or so. Please get in touch with me via the email address in the notes. I do want to hear about your hobbies and I would love to interview you about them. In the meantime, while I have no interviews lined up, I will continue to look at hobbies myself. And the next episode is going to be about ghost hunting. Friend of the show, Adam Wilkins, from our very first episode about motorsport, will be returning to help me out with some ghost hunting activities. We're going to be doing electronic voice phenomena. We're going to be using a Ouija board and various other bits and bobs to basically scare ourselves silly in the dark. So look forward to that as it's coming on. And I'll see you very, very soon on the next episode of The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. Goodbye. Thank you.